Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be turning our attention to verses 26 through 72 of Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, 26 to 72. Let's take a moment and pray together. Gracious Father, we, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. Help us now as we open your word together, press the reality of it deep into our hearts this morning, and may it from there bring forth the fruit of transformed lives and lips that praise you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, happy new year. It is good to be together on the first day of 2023, year of our Lord. Uh, you know, one of the, the things on many people's minds this time of year is New Year's resolutions, something of a tradition that most of us have probably participated in at one point or another. Some years I'll have a few, some years I, I, I won't, um, but, but they can be helpful for us at times as an occasion for setting specific goals as it relates to matters that are really important to us, matters related to our our walk with Christ, our relationships with one another, our health, our work, our finances. Perhaps, perhaps you're using this as an occasion in the new year here to, to set goals and, and attack goals with fresh resolve as it relates to your health, working out, eating better, brushing your teeth, flossing, um, or, 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 or maybe you have new marital or family habits that you're seeking to, to meet and, and establish, like more one-on-one -on -one time with the kids or regular date nights with your spouse, growing in patience with one another, those sorts of things. Perhaps you've got certain goals specific to your work or finances or reading more books or cultivating friendships. Perhaps you've set specific spiritual goals as it relates to, to particular virtues that you'd like to cultivate in your life or spiritual habits that you'd like to prioritize or aspects of Christian maturity that you'd like to grow in. This can be a helpful time to simply pursue these kinds of activities and rhythms and characteristics with fresh resolve. That's one of the benefits of New Year's resolutions. Here's another benefit of New Year's resolutions, to remind us how weak and feeble we truly are when it comes to our resolve and ability to improve ourselves. And one of the things that comes to mind every year when the subject of New Year's resolutions comes up is Michael Scott in the office scolding his employees for failing to keep their New Year's resolutions. He says to them, what's wrong with you people? Can't you stick to anything? And he sticks a big head of broccoli in Kevin's mouth, forces him to eat it. It's probably safe to say that most people who set New Year's resolutions are asking themselves some form of that question within just a few weeks' time. I read this past week that only about 9% of people actually keep their New Year's resolutions. Because here's the reality, the strength of our resolve is not as substantial as we'd like to think. And we see that to be the case in our passage this morning. As we read Mark 14, 26 to 72, we're, we're, we're going to see here Jesus' disciples profess a, a resolute commitment and dedication to be faithful to Him when His time of betrayal and arrest comes. But what we find is, 
Instead, failure after failure after failure on the part of Christ's disciples. They profess a resolve to, to stick with him until death, but, but what we find among them instead is a group of sleepy, scattering disciples, none of whom keep their resolution, who all fail him. But what's more is that we find a Savior who is faithful in their place. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we are going to read again Mark 14, 26 through 72, something of a lengthy passage, but we're going to read the whole thing here. And as we do, let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God as it's written for us through the pen of Mark. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together And and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. We're obviously getting back into Mark's gospel this morning. We intend to finish our time in this book this month, and so we're, we're taking something of a larger passage here, but Perhaps you can see the, the, the rationale for that. This passage has a, a clear and symmetrical structure to it. It begins and ends with the subject of Peter's denial of our Lord. The subject of, of Peter's denial serves as kind of bookends here. And then just enclosed within each of those bookends are, are scenes in which Jesus himself is being tested, but himself being found faithful. As a kind of contrast to the disciples and Peter, and then smack dab in the center of our passage is a scene in which Jesus is betrayed and abandoned by his very own failing disciples. And with all this, Mark is trying to show a, a, a clear contrast between the disciples' failure and our Lord's faithfulness. The disciples fail every test and trial and temptation here in our passage, while Jesus is found faithful and true in every test of our passage. So the big idea that we're kind of working with here is that while we're prone to failure, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. And we're going to see this as we just simply walk through our passage here and then close by teasing out with some, some, some application here. But first, we're just going to walk through our passage. And you'll want to have your Bible open for this so that you can follow along as we make our way through. And, and the scene of our passage here begins with Peter's denial foretold. And in and, and, and just the previous text, we saw the Lord institute the Lord's Supper for his church. 
And at the supper's conclusion, we find in verse 26 that they sang a hymn. And after singing a hymn, the Lord and his disciples returned to the Mount of Olives. And, and it's there that Jesus gives them some bad news. He tells them that they will all fall away. They will all fall away, which is it's not a bad translation, but could be misunderstood. The word translated there means to fall or falter, and at times in the New Testament, it can be associated with the, the sin of apostasy, but, but that's not what it's talking about here. It's speaking to this reality that the disciples are going to fail in the face of this coming test and trial. The disciples, alongside Jesus, are about to undergo a test, a trial, and it's one in which they are going to fail. And Jesus actually shows them that this was foreseen and foretold in Zechariah 13, 7. There the Lord said himself, I will strike the shepherd. That's, that's God speaking. He's going to strike the shepherd down. And when he does so, it says, the sheep will be scattered. They're all going to flee. They're all going to, to defect the moment the danger comes. Then Jesus gives him this gracious promise that after their defection and after his resurrection, he's actually going to regather them again. He says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But then at this bad news, Peter pipes up. Remember, he's, he's the one from whom Mark gets the content for this gospel. And so I'm sure he remembers this with such clarity. He, he pipes up. He's indignant at such a thought. He, he can't believe that he would fall away and fail and abandon his Lord. He just can't believe it. And so he professes resolve to follow Jesus. He says, even though they will all fall away, I will not. He says, you know, Lord, I, I can see what you're saying about these other guys. But come on, me? I, I, I won't do it. I, I, I won't fall away. And, and to this, the Lord says, well, Peter, you know, I actually wasn't going to single you out or anything. Now that you mention it, on this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. So, so not only is Peter going to abandon Jesus like the rest of the disciples, but the Lord says, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny that you even know me. Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter just can't believe this. So he says, if, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I'm resolved to stick with you come life or death. And the rest of the disciples said the same, it says. At this point, beginning in verse 32, they actually head down the mountain to a garden, this garden at the bottom of the mountain called Gethsemane. And, and this garden is called Gethsemane for good reason. Gethsemane means olive press. It's there where they, they crushed and pressed olives, presumably from the Mount of Olives, to make olive oil. It's also appropriately named because it's here that Jesus meets with this intense and crushing spiritual affliction. It's here that he himself is, is hard-pressed in his soul. It's here that he himself is tested, as we see Jesus tested in the garden here. And in the midst of his testing, he, he does what we might expect. He prays. And coming to Gethsemane, he says to the disciples, sit here while I pray. Then he takes his, his kind of inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. He, he takes them a little further in with him, and he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful to death, 
even to death, remain here and watch. So, so you can see here how, how Jesus is distressed and troubled in soul, verse 33 says. He, he's so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief that he says, I could die of grief here. And as we often do in the midst of, of sorrow and grief, he, he wants his friends close by. And sometimes in the midst of deep grief, the, the presence of close friends makes all the difference. And so he brings the three with, and he, and he simply tells them, stay close by and just, just pray. This is an hour of testing for him and for them, so, so they need to pray, he says. And after this, he, he walks just a little bit farther. He collapses in his grief, just depleted of strength. He just falls to the ground, and, and there he prays, asking God if it's possible that this hour might pass from him. Now, when we see this word hour in the Gospels, it's typically speaking of, of the event of Christ's crucifixion and death. He's asking that, that he, he might somehow escape what's coming. Like, like Isaac, Abraham's son, was relieved from the coming sacrifice, from the appearance of the ram in the thicket. He's, he's asking if he might be relieved of this sacrificial role here. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He would have this, this cup removed from here. He, he prays to be relieved from this hour. And yet, even with that, there's one thing more important, most important to him. There's one thing ultimately ultimate to him, and that is God's perfect will being done. And so in addition to requesting the, the removal of this cup, he says, yet, not what I will, but what you will, Father. He would have this cup removed if it were the will of God, but if not, he will accept whatever the Father has for him. Now, some people remark here and are perplexed at how grieved and sorrowful Jesus is as he approaches this hour. Many will notice that, that you know, many Christians throughout history have, have faced gruesome deaths and, and have done so so serenely, so poised, apparently free from such grief and sorrow in the face of horrid deaths. You, you can read martyrdom stories of people like Polycarp or Perpetua or Nicholas Ridley or Hugh Latimer and, and, and many other people like that. And, and, and you can see in them such serenity in the face of gruesome death. And seemingly without any of this, this sorrow or heaviness that we see in Christ here. And you can see this same at, at times even in those who are not in the faith. There have been many people throughout history who have faced death with, without the grief and sorrow such as we see in Jesus here. And this can often perplex people. Why is Jesus so distressed here? And the answer lies in this, in this language of cup. See, death by crucifixion was, was a horrid, gruesome way to die. But there is something more adding to the awfulness of Jesus' experience here. There is something compounding the terribleness of his death here. And we see it in this word cup. You, you, you see in the, in the Bible, the word cup used like it is here is typically referring to the, the wrath and judgment of God upon sin. 
You could read Isaiah 51 or Jeremiah 25 to see this. The, the cup that Jesus is referring to here is not just his lot in the plan of God, as some think it to be. The cup here is the wrath and judgment of God that Jesus is about to take upon himself for human sin. You see, Jesus did not just endure physical suffering in his crucifixion and death. More significant even than Jesus' physical sufferings was his spiritual suffering, the spiritual agony he was enduring leading up to, and even in the cross, outstripped the agony of his physical suffering. Here, he's taking upon his shoulders the weight of our sin and guilt. Here, he is praying to the God from whom he is knowing nothing but pleasure and delight and joy and preparing instead to receive the horrors of his wrath and condemnation and judgment. He is so distressed and troubled in his soul because he is taking the hell of God's wrath in our place in both body and soul. Friends, it is the wrath of God that strikes the shepherd down, and yet what does the shepherd say? Yet not what I will, but what you will. I will accept whatever you plan, God. And in this test in the garden, the man Christ Jesus chooses the will of God. He's faithful, he's true. His desire to obey his Father is stronger than his desire to avoid this cup or hour. And this is placed in, in stark contrast with the disciples because here we see those who just professed resolve to stay with Jesus until death. They can't even stay awake with him for one hour. Well, Jesus is being tested and submitting himself to the will of the Father. He comes to his disciples and finds them sleeping. Simon, are, are, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray. You're, you're, you're being tested. You're about to be tempted. Watch and pray. You may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. He, he finds him sleeping. And not just once, not twice, but three times. And on the third time, he wakes them, saying, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And here we move on to see Jesus betrayed and abandoned. Because as he was saying this, Judas came, his betrayer, and with Judas, a, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. And there's this mad mob of armed people coming to arrest Jesus here. This, this mob was organized by a, a council called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was a council there at the temple in Jerusalem. It was made up of chief, chief priests, scribes, elders. Some of them were likely present in the mob here, as well as probably some of the temple police that were there in Jerusalem and some Roman soldiers. They all came out to arrest Jesus and to take him under custody. And Judas had, had a, a plan by which the arresters would identify Jesus there in the dark of Gethsemane. He, he, would, he would kiss Jesus, not with an affectionate kiss, but with a kiss of betrayal by which the mob would identify their target. And as they lay hands on Jesus to arrest him, Jesus points out the obvious absurdity of all this. He, he says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. In other words, he, he's saying, am I, am I a criminal? 
Have I done any violence to merit such an arrest, such a mob? Haven't you had opportunity to arrest me if I've done anything to merit it? The answer is obvious. This is absurd. Yet Jesus says, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Let, Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Let the shepherd be struck here. And as the shepherd is struck, the, the sheep scatter. Verse 50 says, they all left him and fled. And all of them had just been at table with Jesus earlier that night where they all drank the cup. They had all earlier just that night all professed resolve to stick with Jesus until death, and yet they all abandon him and fall away here. The strength of their resolve is not as substantial as they thought. Because when push came to shove, they fled, they failed. They left Jesus and utterly defected. And at this point, Mark inserts a a peculiar detail in the story about a young man who followed this arresting mob with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And when some from this crowd went to saw this young man following and went to go lay hands on him to arrest him. They grabbed him by his clothing, but it says that he, he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's, it's a peculiar addition to the story. None of the other gospels record it. Because of that, many believe this young, naked young man to be Mark himself, which is possible. We do know that Mark was from Jerusalem. And the theory is that this addition serves as Mark's way of inserting himself in the narrative and showing himself to be an eyewitness to some of these events as well. We don't know for sure if that's the case, but, but one thing this detail does show is that whoever this young man was, though he initially followed Jesus, he too fled and defected. And then as we go on to read, we find that this young man was not the only one who attempted to follow. It seems that Peter did too. We see in verse 54, He followed the crowd right into the temple courtyard of the high priest where he sat by a fire to warm himself. And it's here that that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes made up this council assembled to give Jesus something of a trial, if we could even dignify it by calling it that. And it's here where we see that just as Jesus was tested in the garden earlier, he's tested here in the meeting of this council you can see here that the, the, the council had already come to their decision about what to do with Jesus. It says in verse 55 that, that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They'd already planned to put him to death here. It was just a, a matter of getting it done one way or another. And yet they still have a hard time getting it done because it says that they couldn't find credible testimony. It says some of those present stood and bore false witness against Jesus. But even then, they, they couldn't get their conjured up testimonies to agree. Mark gives one example of this. Someone rose up in, in verse 58 and said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Just a serious accusation. In Israel, the temple was the center of life. It was where God and humanity met. It was the center of Israel, spiritually, politically, socially, And moreover, any threat to destroy a temple would have drawn Roman attention as well. Rome was generally interested in keeping the peace amongst its subjects. So this was a serious accusation. Of course, we know from John 2, 19, that Jesus did say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Yet it's clear 
And he wasn't speaking about the stone temple in which they then stood. He was speaking about his own body. And this must have been evident to some who were at the trial because Mark says in verse 59, even about this their testimony did not agree. However, what stands out in the midst of all this speaking is the one who is conspicuously quiet. Verse 60 goes on, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And it says, he remained silent and made no answer. He was silent. He didn't rise to his own defense here. He didn't speak up to clarify how these council members and testifiers were getting it all wrong. Mark wants us to see that Jesus was silent here, hearkening back to what was prophesied about him in Isaiah 53, 7. It says there, Jesus was oppressed. He was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't rise to his own defense because he had already submitted to the will of his Father. He had already chosen to let the Scriptures be fulfilled and to let himself be crucified in our place. He was being tested here. And in his silence, in his opening not his mouth, he has showed himself faithful to God and to us. Of course, as we move on, we do see him open his mouth eventually. Yet it's not in his own defense, but to make a faithful confession of the truth. A confession which would actually seal his death. As the trial goes on, the high priest eventually asks Jesus outright, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Saying, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the long promised one? And not just that, but are you the Son of the Blessed? The Son of God. Understand, he's not just asking Jesus if he's, if he's a merely human Messiah. He's, not, he's asking, are you the divine one come in human vesture? Now, claiming to be the Son of God in this way was a clear claim to deity. And to this, Jesus does answer. And he answers in a way that makes it abundantly clear. There's no mistake in Jesus' claim here. He says, I am. Understand, he doesn't just use the typical Greek word to answer, I am. That would be the Greek word, me." He doesn't just say, me, I am. He says, ego, I, me, I am, which is peculiar. If we were to literally translate it, it would sound like a stutter, I, I am. And what's significant about that particular phrasing when Jesus answers the question is that that's how the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Bible that they used at the time, that's how the Septuagint translates the Lord referring to himself as I am in Exodus 3 from the burning bush. See, Jesus is making it abundantly clear he is the Son of the Blessed One. He is the Divine One come in human flesh. Not only that, but he tells the high priest, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Here he's claiming two Old Testament texts for himself, Psalm 110.1, as we've been seeing throughout our time in Mark's gospel, Daniel 7, 
Psalm 110 verse 1 foretells that the coming Messiah will be enthroned as the king at the right hand of God. And Daniel 7 shows the scene of that taking place as the one who who ascends into heaven with the clouds and there reigns as our forever king. Here Jesus is saying that while he stands condemned in this court, he will soon be vindicated as king over all of heaven and earth at the right hand of God, as the son of David and the son of God whose glory and kingdom will know no end. And this is just more than the high priest can take. He's outraged. He tears his clothes. He calls his cohorts to a decision. And they're all in agreement to condemn Jesus to death. From there, they take him, beat him, spit on him. They blindfold him, struck him, calling him to prophesy about who struck him until they hand him over to Roman guards who likewise received him with blows. And while all of this was taking place, Peter was in the same courtyard nearby, experiencing a test of his own. Yet what we see with Peter is failure instead of faithfulness. Look last at Peter's denial fulfilled. While Peter was in the same courtyard by the fire warming himself, a little servant girl recognized him as belonging to the band of Jesus' disciples. So she said to Peter in verse 67, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And Peter, who who professed resolve to never deny Jesus, even if it meant his own death, in that moment he cowered, he faltered, he failed, and he denied Jesus. I neither know nor understand what you mean, he says. And then the first cock crow took place, and he tried to get away and went out into the gateway. The girl followed him, it seems. She, she came again, said to the bystanders around them, she points out Peter, she says, this, this man is one of them. Again, he denied it. And one of the bystanders who heard the, the servant girl identify Peter, joined in, said, certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean. His accent, we find in Matthew 26, 73, gave him away. And yet Peter still not willing to give it up and be identified with Jesus, ups the ante here where he not only denies Jesus, but he invokes a curse upon himself and swears. It's probably taking the Lord's name in vain here. It seems to be what's indicated. We don't know exactly what he said. It's probably not recorded because it was so vile, but, but, but we do have clear record of his third denial where he said, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And at that moment, Peter heard the second crow. And he remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. We all know this feeling. How many times have we all fallen in the face of temptation? How many times... Have we all given in to that besetting sin? How many times have we all sworn and resolved to never indulge in that particular sinful proclivity again? Never view those sorts of images again. Never speak so harshly to our loved ones again. To never fail to bear witness for Christ when the opportunity came again. To to never engage in that juicy bit of gossip again, to to never drink that much again, to never give way to his advances again, whatever it is, only to have never be just a few weeks or a few hours later 
We all know that, that feeling of professing to resolve faithfulness only to, to give way to failure because the, the strength of our resolve is not as substantial as we might think. Which Peter realizes here. This is failure so clearly contrasted with Christ's faithfulness. You see how, how Peter failed when standing before this little servant girl while Christ was faithful when standing before the most powerful men of his nation. Peter lied in his own defense while Christ didn't even tell the truth in his own defense. How Peter cursed himself and took the Lord's name in vain while Christ made the good confession of his own messianic and divine identity. While Peter and all the disciples failed, Christ was faithful. And what does this have to do with us as disciples of Christ today? We who are also weak and prone to failure when facing tests and trials and temptations. What does Peter's and the disciples' failures and Christ's faithfulness say to us? I think it's timely that we find ourselves in this text because this is a time of year wherein many of us are, are, are focusing on our plans and making resolutions and changes and progressing in maturity and godliness. And, 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 and listen, it's not wrong to do so. But as we do so, we need to reckon with this reality. We are prone to failure, friends. We also need to remember this, this more important reality that Christ has been faithful for us, friends. In light of this reckoning and remembering, there's two pieces of application I want to kind of tease out for us here. The first is this, just trust and rest. Trust and rest. You know, there, there's a gracious design in this clear contrast between Christ's faithfulness and the disciples' failures. There's a gracious design. We, we don't just see this contrast in order to show us how much better Jesus is than us, although that's true. But that's not the reason Mark shows it here. Remember, the, this story is given to us from Peter by way of Mark. Why would the then restored Peter want us to see this here unless, in part, he wanted to show us that if there's hope for a broken, sinful weakling like Peter, there's hope for people like you and me. This is a passage for people who have messed up big time. This, this is a passage for people who are finding themselves to be far more weak and prone to failure than they ever thought. This is a passage for people who look toward the future with fear, afraid that it's just going to be the same shameful repeat of their pasts. This is a passage for people like us. So that people like us would see that while we do and will and have failed completely, Jesus has been faithful in that in our place to show us that Jesus' faithfulness has come to cover our failures. It's come to, it's, it shows us that Jesus has been faithful and that as the faithful one, he went to the cross to take our failures upon himself. He went to the cross to take that cup of God's wrath and judgment for it all in our stead so that his record of faithfulness would be counted to us. So that we who have failed would be counted and accepted as faithful in Him. 
And because of that, for those of us who trust in Christ, we could, we could not be more accepted than we are right now in Christ. And nothing can change it. This passage is here to show us the, the matchless, scandalous grace of God for a bunch of flimsy, weak, broken, sinful people like Peter and the disciples and us. So hear me, don't, don't place your primary and ultimate hope and aim in some idealized future version of yourself. Don't place your faith and hope in your own resolve and strength to be faithful. If you do, you, you're headed toward heartbreak like Peter here because you'll never be good enough. You'll never be strong enough. You'll never be faithful enough. But if you let God change the subject of your life from your failure and your resolve to Christ's faithfulness, you will find rest for your soul. If you trust in him as all the faithfulness you need, you'll find he is enough for you and you will find rest. Trust and rest, friend. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior for you. His faithfulness is more than enough to cover your failure. Trust and rest. But then what's more is that this passage not only calls us to, to, to rest in Christ's faithfulness for us, it's, it's also meant to equip us for faithfulness in him. It's not wrong to want to grow in, in Christ-likeness and maturity this year. We should want to. We should long to even. But as we remember that we're prone to failure and as we seek to follow in Christ's footsteps, as we seek to, to pursue faithfulness and Christ-likeness, as we seek to conform ourselves to the will of God in Christ, we have to heed Christ's words here to watch and pray. Watch and pray. Jesus told his disciples in verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, that you may not give way to temptation. Watch and pray so that you might be equipped and empowered for faithfulness in the midst of temptation, in the midst of trial and testing. Watch and pray. Prayer is an essential means of grace through which God equips and empowers us for Christian faithfulness. I'll never forget a, a story that my, my father would tell us when we were growing up. My, my dad's a pastor, and he, was, he, was, he had a friend who was a fellow minister who had given way to temptation, who had had a moral failure, who, who disqualified himself from ministry. And I remember my dad was meeting with him after, and, and he just asked him plainly, what, what happened? How did this happen to you? And I'll never forget the man's answer. He said, it all started when I stopped praying. It all started when I stopped praying. Evidently, there was a time prior to his moral failure where he had stopped engaging in this means of grace we called prayer, and he said that that was the moment that his, his, his being catalyzed into this life of unfaithfulness began, and it just snowballed from this moment that he stopped praying. Friends, if we would be faithful in our Christian walk with Christ, if we would be found faithful in the midst of temptation, Prayer is crucial. Prayer is not just this, this, this thing we do where we talk and God listens. It, it's, it's an act of utter desperation and dependence on the omnipotent one. It's a means through which our souls commune with and draw strength from the glorious one. It's a divinely designed instrument through which we are brought into glad-hearted conformity to, to God's will. 
when we live as people who truly pray, we, we undergo a Copernican revolution of sorts. We're in our lives and desires and hearts are reoriented around the Supreme One. When we pray, we're engaging in a means through which God supplies us with divine strength and empowers us to be what we would otherwise be far too weak to be in and of ourselves. That's what Jesus shows us here when praying, isn't it? Doesn't he model for us this kind of praying that, of course, brings heartfelt desires and needs to God, but But more importantly, he models for us here a kind of praying that brings our hearts into glad submission to his perfect will. He models a deep dependence upon his Father for us. He shows us a deep communion between him and his Father. Communion that he has purchased for us so that we might be led to strength for faithfulness instead of failure in him. And if we would be a people empowered to grow in Christ-like faithfulness, we must be a people who trust and rest and who watch and pray. Because the strength of our resolve is not as substantial as we might think. We are prone to failure, friends. But he who is faithful in our place can empower and equip us to follow in his footsteps more and more as we trust and rest, and as we watch and pray. Let's do that now. Father, we, we need to go undergo these Copernican revolutions ourselves. We need your supply of divine strength, and so we ask for it now. We ask in prayer now. Would you strengthen us for faithfulness in this upcoming year? We, we know that we're prone to failure. We know that we're weak. We know that the strength of our resolve is not as substantial as we'd like to think. But we know that you are the omnipotent one and that you are our Abba, our Father in Christ. And so we ask for help. We ask for help. Help us to follow our Savior Help us to entrust our failures to him and to entrust ourselves to him for faithfulness. Strengthen it. Strengthen us for it now. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, strengthen us. Give us the nourishment that we need, body and soul, to follow Christ, to be faithful to him in all things as the one who has been entirely and utterly and constantly faithful to us. We pray all these things for his glory and in his name. Amen.